Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Harless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. This is the podcast where we recap the fiction story behind Magic the Gathering and add our own bits of flavor text, speculation, and reactions thrown in. All the stories we go over, you can read for yourself at mtgstory.com. We are currently in season six, which follows the story of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. All of the fiction stories for the Lost Caverns of Ixalan are out right now, and I can't wait to dive into it. Today's episode is episode two of the Main story and it's written by Valerie Valdez. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So last episode, we were introduced to tons of new characters as well as reintroduced to some of our favorite returns. One of those returning favorites is Quintorius, our Loxodon student from Strixhaven, who happens to be a confirmed planeswalker. He planeswalks into Ixalan in our last episode in search of evidence to solve a mystery about his so-called coin empire. And it just so happens that Sahili, another one of our character favorites from previous seasons, has proof of the coin empire here on Ixalan in the form of ancient copper tablets found in one of Orozca's temples. These tablets fit into recesses on a giant sealed door, and the magical seal takes form of a poem that our old friend on the podcast, Watley, the warrior poet, translates. Together, Watley and Quint solve the poem's riddle and manage to open the door into the depths of Ixalan. What they find is unnerving, to say the least. A lot of death, in other words. These caverns are massive, and there is this pinkish magical hue over everything, as well as more than a few corpses. Meanwhile, we have some newer characters we were introduced to with this season as well. One of these characters is one of my personal favorites, Malcolm. He's a siren with big feathered wings and is a pirate with the Brazen Coalition. He's trying to solve what terrible thing happened to a mine called Downtown. As he investigates with his goblin companion, Breaches, it seems like the underground mine just up and vanished. And there's this cryptic message left by one of the last remaining lifts that delves deep into this abyssal cavern. And this message just reads, down. Malcolm and Breaches decide they have to investigate the underground to find out what happened to downtown. And finally, we have a third story happening in tandem with the other two. This one follows the vampires of the Dusk Legion, particularly our new character, Amalia who was a young cartographer with immense powers to be able to manipulate the world around her by drawing on maps. She is helping to map the wilds of Ixalan, following this expedition of vampires led by Vito, who is a zealous follower of Aklazots, an ancient god of Ixalan. He believes that by setting this god free of his prison, it will save the Dusk Legion from immense violence and destruction. And we found out last episode that Vito will stop at nothing to get inside the deeper underground where Aklazots is supposedly kept imprisoned. Amalia has no choice but to follow along, even if that means sacrificing human lives to open the way. But she doesn't like where this is leading at all. Unfortunately, not many of the other vampires in her company agree and are all on side Vito. 
So that's where we left off last episode. In today's episode, we begin with Watley and Quint's expedition into the caverns of Ixalan themselves. We're behind Waita's eyes, who is a young warrior we met last episode and definitely aspires to be the next warrior poet like Watley. So obviously, I love this girl. She fought in the war against the Phyrexians and has a distinguishable eye patch now as a result. Now, she's waiting as Watley and Quint examine these old paintings and reliefs deep in the underground caverns. Now, obviously, Quint, an archaeologist, is absolutely absorbed in his task and totally enthralled with these old artifacts of an ancient civilization. But unfortunately, their pack dinosaurs with them are not as enthused. They just kind of stamp around impatiently. I can't imagine a dinosaur that's used to like running out in the open is very excited about being in a cave like that. Yeah, probably I don't not blame them at all. Yeah. But Watley observes here that wherever they go, there seem to be signs of struggle, of death, of violence, of people dying a long time ago. Like these are not fresh bodies. These have been here for a long time, but obviously something went down here. And as Quint points out, more and more of that pinkish magical pigment is everywhere. And we're going to start to see this pink pigment. We're going to start to see it everywhere. And just imagine this like very violet color, like it's almost a purpley pink and it's gorgeous. It's just it pops off of everything. Like imagine you're down deep in this dark cave and there's this like almost like a neon light kind of shining Mm -hmm. um, from like glyphs and various other things. And really, Quince just noticing that there's just more and more of it. And he's not really sure what it means yet. Yeah, I think this is going to be important. A little bit of foreshadowing going on here. So (laughs) I'm going to read directly the next part from the story. On they went, climbing down tunnels and hiking through dark, cold caverns. At nearly every place where their path narrowed, they found barricades and bodies, some prepared for their rest like the ones in the first room, others lying where they fell, weapons clutched in bony fingers. Waita tried not to lose herself in memories of her own battles, slipping on blood, comrades screaming, the scent of magic and sweat and death. She wondered whether conflict was inevitable whether peace was transient and fragile like so much bone and clay. And they stop short when they come across a chasm of glowing green fog. Huge blocks of stone, each bearing its own glyph, stretched across the chasm like a bridge. Gaps between the stones would make crossing difficult. Kaparakti dropped a pebble into the fog. No sound signaled its landing. And Kaparakti is a warrior from the Sun Empire who is with them in their expedition. Just forgot to mention that earlier. He's close friends with Inti, who is Watley's cousin, who is also with them. The poem speaks of this, Watley said, brow furrowing, and recited the lines. Pass across the mists of time, stone by stone, foot and hand, eyes sharp, heart strong, breath calm. Begin again to reach the end. Watley ran her finger along a panel set into the wall, also bearing the same glyphs. I wonder what this is meant to be. Several symbols were missing or broken, pieces of the stone littering the ground below. And while they are trying to solve this, Waita is struck with an idea. She thinks that she has a way to solve the riddle. You see, there are glyphs that line the bridge, and she figures that they match the poem Watley and Quint had solved last episode. So getting a running start... She just leaps onto the first stone, which remains firm, thank God, beneath her boots. That was very brave, but possibly very smart on Waita's part. (laughs) So she keeps going one stone to the next, and she's gaining confidence as she leaps. 
maybe even becoming a little too confident at one point, and she goes too fast and stumbles onto an adjacent stone. Had Kaparakti not followed her and caught her fall, Waita would have fallen into the fog. But together, she and Kaparakti reached the end, where they find a panel of glyphs on the far wall. When Waita touches this, all the stones they had leapt across to get there slide together to form kind of this solid bridge that the rest of their party can then cross. While Waita and Kaparakti wait for the rest of the party to join them on the far side of this foggy cavern, Kaparakti turns to Waita, clearly impressed with her bravery from just a minute ago, and says a warrior like her will be an asset in the coming war with the Dusk Legion. And Waita turns to Kaparakti here with kind of a question over, are you sure war is inevitable? And Kaparakti replies, as sure as day follows night. The colonizers must be eliminated or they will never stop trying to rule us. Might protects our empire. Waita thought again to the bodies they had passed in the caves and the ones that filled her dreams, wondering what the price of that strength might be. From here, we transition to one of our other familiar narrators from last episode, and it is Malcolm the Siren. I just want to take a second to talk about Malcolm's costuming because I love it. It's so piratey, but it's also like very sleek because he's he's essentially like an aviator in, in a way, like not with airplanes, not with like futzing around with engines, but just because he can fly. Right. And so it really has this like sleek look to it that makes it like look like it's an aerodynamic kind of costume, in my opinion. But he has like these striped pants, this leather jacket, and he has this cap on with goggles so that he can kind of fly through the air without, you know, getting the wind and the bugs in his eyes. If any, if you've ever been on a motorcycle, you know how important it is to cover your eyes when you're going fast. But I just love his costume and I just wanted to talk about it for a minute um, so that it can help you guys kind of visualize it. He's very he's very well dressed for a pirate, I just have to say. Yeah, it's a really good outfit. It's really cool. And I think like like steampunk and piratey Steampunk's uh, a good really... word. Yeah, yeah, steampunk. That's the vibe that I get. It's like aviation steampunk is the vibe that I get from it. It's pretty cool. So he has like these like goggle kind of things, but they're not exactly goggles. They're like a little bit different and they look like kind of not homemade, but um, special made. Right. So it's just it's really neat. So Malcolm and Breaches, as well as the few pirates that they're with, have been taking elevators down, down, down down into the depths. I mean, this seems like they're just going down forever. And I'm going to read this next part from the story. He and his crew were on their 10th, 11th elevator, their headlamps and shoulder lights barely cutting through the darkness of the cenote. While he could easily use his dowsing skills to find ore, finding missing people was beyond the scope of his magic. Each time they reached the end of an elevator, they searched for a sign of downtown's residents finding a muddle of tracks in the ore dust that suggested many people moving in one direction. Every level had its own cutouts and branching caves dug into the walls, and each showed signs of its workers joining the mass exodus ever downward. And with a jolt, their most recent elevator reaches its destination and Malcolm breaches and a few of the other pirates with them step off. Now the next elevator is across this cenote, and Breaches shouts into the quiet after spotting a trail of old tools leading into one of the tunnels. And there's this greenish black blood smearing the walls and the air smells of mold and of rot. Ew. So Malcolm and Breaches obviously investigate this tunnel while the other pirates prepare the other elevator for their next descent deeper into the caves. It's like I just have to imagine like, like Malcolm said that they were on their 11th, maybe elevator, elevator, yeah. not just floor, 
but like elevator into this. Under, I can't. I was trying to wrap my brain around how deep that has to be. It has to be well, and incredibly deep. Know, yeah, because we don't know how many floors of the mine each elevator traverses. Like, I don't know if each elevator is 10 floors or 100 floors. Right. But 10 different elevators. Yeah. That's tells that tells me a lot. Like they're not just going to build. I mean, it's a business. It's a mining operation. They're going to only build things that are necessary for the operation of the business, right? And so if they could get away with one elevator, they would have. They can't. It's too big, right? That it's that so deep. really tells us yeah. this this place is they're going deep down into the center of Exelon, which is really really cool. We've never seen the center of Exelon before. So, yeah, that seems yeah. where they're headed. But I can imagine how difficult this must be for Malcolm, who is used to flying. I mean, he has wings. He's made for the sky and how how um, close and, you know, dark and kind claustrophobic. of claustrophobic it must feel for Malcolm yeah. down here. So anyway, I was trying to wrap my brain around how deep 11 elevators really is into the underground. Anyway, um, you know, Natalie, you hate spiders. We know that yeah. um, from from the Phyrexian arts. Yeah. <laughs> I am claustrophobic as all get out. Um, I I do not like being on an elevator anyway. Oh, so and this so would be like this your is worst like my fear. nightmare. <laughs> yes. This is my nightmare. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Um reading about the spiders in the Phyrexian arc definitely triggered some of my phobia. I can imagine that this is triggering a little bit for you too. It's just Oh like, yeah, I just yeah. keep I'm like, ugh. Like, I just like, keep oh, like, oh no, jokes. no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, anyway, I sidetracked us uh, back to the story. OK, sorry, I sidetracked us back to the story. Um, so <laughs> the other pirates, they're getting ready for they're getting the other elevator ready for their next descent because the elevators keep going, of course. And Malcolm and Breaches are investigating this tunnel. And as Malcolm walks into the tunnel, the fetid smell grew stronger and fungus is sprouting from all the walls, thicker and more prevalent. And it's all glowing His feathers were standing on edge in this place. And the low-hanging cavern opens at the end of the tunnel and Breaches spots a pile of bones covered in black mold amongst the fungus growths. Then the pirates alert Malcolm to something moving amongst the growths. Multiple somethings. With a hiss like a cockroach, something lurched sideways out of sight. Mottled flank, scales, fungal growths, bursting from raw flesh. A flash of eye and a head more skull than skin. We need to go, Malcolm muttered. Now. A distant scream, then a wet crunch sounded in the quiet. And I'll read this next part from the story because, oh my gosh, y'all, are you ready for this? All right. A roar answered, like a dinosaur's, but wrong. Wet the way a sailor breathed when they'd just been fished out of the drink. As one, the pirates pointed their lamps toward the sound, their staccato heartbeats loud to Malcolm's siren senses. A horror emerged from the passage beside them. The living corpse of a raptor. Half its snout rotted away, the rest bristling with teeth and fungal tentacles that rippled like anemones. More revolting than Lank had been, because at least he was dead. Nothing so decayed should be skulking around. It moved stiffly, awkwardly, broken claws alternately tapping and scraping the stone ground. Mushroom-like gills fluttered in its neck, hissing soft, pale clouds of dust. Not dust. Spores. 
and there are multiple of them. So these zombie raptors, these zombie dinosaurs, these brought back to life, still somehow living with fungus sprouting out of them. Oh, (laughs) yes. Dinosaurs move in unison. Fungal strands attached to them are described like puppet strings. So that's that's interesting. I don't know what that means yet, but that's interesting. And Malcolm grabs breeches by the collar of his coat and they just run. So they're running for their lives from these zombie raptors. Right here, we switch perspectives in the story. And this time we are with Vito. Now, Vito was the zealous vampire Amalia witnessed sacrifice a human in order to gain passage into the temple of Aklazots. This is the vampire who never lets a book out of his sight and carries a lance. Yes, that's Vito. So Vito, this is the first time we're getting his perspective. Remember, we were behind Amalia's eyes last time, and we realize now that Vito believes he has been chosen for this task to free Aklazots, claiming himself a, quote, instrument of the divine. He would prove himself worthy by bringing Aklazots to Alta Torazan, ending the tiresome theological debates that plagued his people. They would embrace their vampiric strength and reject the sanctimonious humility and restraint preached by St. Elenda. Never again would Torazan be chained, physically or spiritually. So, yes, Vito believes he is on a holy quest, and nothing will stop him. Even the other vampires like Clavileño on their expedition company start calling him Hierophant. Vito wonders on Amalia's loyalties. He senses her resistant, but Amalia is too timid to outwardly defy him. And at this point, the vampires come across another sealed door with another altar. And with hardly a blink, Vito sacrifices another one of their human servants and the way opens. Where before he had found narrow tunnels leading deeper into the earth, Now, instead, Vito faced a massive underground desert, unearthly light filtering in from tunnels in the ceiling. Rough stone pillars and sinkholes like whirlpools disrupted the smooth surface of the ocean of sand. A collapsed monument to something other than Aklazots had been toppled and partly swallowed by the distant edge of the cavern, as if even the earth scorned its blasphemy. Huge passageways on the other side of the sandy sea smoothly bored like mine shafts, led upward and to the right. And Vito, he sends scouts investigating in all directions for signs of Aklazots because the text he carried hadn't mentioned this place, so he's not really sure what to do here. And a scout immediately steps forward in the sand and disappears into it in a bleak because it is quicksand. Yeah, and it's even like more deadly or like a magical form of quicksand because... Like Clavileno and the others turn to each other and they're like, even quicksand doesn't act that quickly. Like he just disappears in a blink. Um, So it's definitely some sort of special sand here. And this is when um, Vito asks his loyal guard, Clavileno, to check for other ways from above. And I'll read this part from the story. Clavileno's legs dissolved into smoke as he rose into the air. He flew back and forth across the desert, darting down to test different areas with his spear marking solid ground by drawing a large X on each spot. By the time he returned to Vito's side, soldiers were bringing planks of wood down from the rooms they had passed, doors and remnants of furniture and anything else long and wide enough to stand on. They formed a makeshift bridge to the first place marked by Clavileño, who deemed it sturdy enough to support multiple people. And so Vito now leads the way across this bridge, and progress is tedious because they have to 
move the bridge with them. Like they reach a point and then everybody kind of gathers up in this very like centered point. And then they have to bring like draw up the pieces that they had laid from behind them and lay it across onto the new groundwork in front of them. And all the while, sand is sucking at like the unstable edges of their path. So they're halfway across this sand sea when these mantis spider creatures begin to attack them. They use razor sharp forearms and lash out at the vampires from the depths of the sand to dismember their prey. And seeing as the vampires were on this bridge with only limited space, chaos erupts. Their horses try to bolt, the humans cower together, and the vampires try to form a protective circle around everyone. Now, Vito and Clavileño shout out a battle cry, and the vampires retaliate, jabbing with their spears. Amalia and Bartolome dispatch one together, Amalia by using a spell that freezes the mantis spider in its tracks, and Bartolome using his enchanted whip to turn it into a blade that decapitates the creature, which was very cool. Like, yeah, like imagine that weapon he, was just very cool. Yeah. 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 He like whips it and it like kind of, you know, like when you whip something, it like wraps around it, wraps around his neck and then he turns it into a blade and it just takes its head off, which is pretty, pretty like, yikes. Yeah, that's pretty, that's yeah. pretty intense. <laughs> but Vito also uses his spear to destroy one and then all is quiet once more. They have defeated the mantis spiders and the vampires are victorious. The four mantis spiders are no longer. And then they finally reach the other side of the sand sea cavern, where a pathway subtly marked with carved bat wings lured them onward. Bartolome organized the porters and prisoners, while Clavileño formed his soldiers into ranks. They reported that beyond the two taken by the monsters, a porter, a soldier, two prisoners, and a horse had fallen into the sand. We honor their sacrifice, Vito said solemnly, surveying his people. Bloodshed is inevitable to assure the glory of Aklazots is restored. Do not waver in your convictions, and your reward will be immeasurable. They carry onwards, but not before Vito noticed Bartolome show a bit of his true feelings in the expressions he's giving Vito. Like, clearly after this, Bartolome is not in agreement at all. And Vito thinks to himself that the enemies of Torazon will fall. And if that's Bartolome... Vito will eliminate him. Once again, Vito just being a great guy. Oh, right? yeah. I'm just yeah. totally being sarcastic. Like, this guy sucks. <laughs> He's yeah. such a baddie. He's a good baddie because I am I hate him. I really don't like him. And he's, I mean, anyone who's just like casually sacrificing humans, probably not a good person. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. interesting because even among vampires who intrinsically are violent, right? Like, they, they live off of blood. That means that there's going to be some violence in their lives in general. But even among vampires, they're like, oh, this guy's a hierophant. Like, yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, it's just really interesting. It's um, so interesting. Picking up yeah. on his attitude. Yeah. And he's up. like the thing that I find really interesting about Vito. He's such a well-written villain in that. Oh, yeah. I couldn't help but see some some similarities like you're going to call me crazy at first, but hear me out. Like I couldn't help but see some similarities between Elish Norn and Vito because Ooh. because Vito is claiming that this is for the betterment of the Legion, right? This is going uh -huh. to save and, everybody. And that he's like anointed by his God yep. and he's anointed by the God. He's on this. So he's like holy the chosen quest. One. But yeah, truthfully, he doesn't care. Like I can't help but see some selfish mm. qualities in him that he's oh, yeah. on this quest for his own glory. Not really 
to do with anything else with the vampires. Like, and, and that's like such a cool villainous quality that I couldn't help but see a, a few similarities there. Um, and just the way that they behave, like the promises run false because their actions speak. Otherwise, the actions are just very selfish. Um, and so that's why I'm kind of like, and I think Bartolome yeah, at think- the very least is starting to see it starting to see that and i think you're right but i also think that vito is not a great manipulator right he just says what he's thinking he he glares at you when he's mad at you and he tells you what he thinks whereas elish was way more cunning that's very true and elish no. was able to take over the multiverse because of that like vito does not right. have that level of influence for sure but he does have that same quality of like no, no, you should totally follow me. It's what's right. It's what's right. It's what's right. But why is it right? Tell me why it's right. And he he doesn't seem to have that answer. It's, yeah. a, it's because this is what the God wants. And that you can't argue with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like you can't say, well, you you have a, a vision from our God and I don't. So but I can't. So I can't. And I can't see your vision. I can't tell you that you're twisting it. I can't tell you it's wrong. You know, so it just it's interesting. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to derail. No, it's like it's a great villain call out. Like we're starting to see the truth behind Vito. And I really took being behind his perspective for all of it to be like, oh, like last episode, last episode, we saw it. But this kind of really solidified. It's like, okay, this is not a good guy. A hundred percent. So then we shift our narration again back to Quintorius and the expedition that he's on. So Quint, Waita, Watley, and the others are traveling through the marvelous underground city filled with stone buildings and narrow streets built deep in this cave. And I'll read this from the story so you can get a sense of what the city is like. The city was constructed from stone blocks covered in a luminescent fungus. Their surface is pockmarked like a coral reef. The blue and green glow of the strange growths was eerily regular, almost mathematical, like some of the complex ritual magic circles Quint had studied at Lorehold College. More interesting were the purple-pink lines etched into the city's central pyramid, apparently from the same pigment they'd encountered repeatedly since that first room already so long ago. And Waita says she doesn't like the look of the mold everywhere, as it's just looks nefarious. And the bodies here, they don't look like they've been given funeral rites. They're just petrified skeletons that are left where they had fallen in various positions of struggle or just collapse. And fungal growths are all sprouted out from these corpses and different uh, orifices. No, thank you. <laughs> no, <that laughs> I don't like that visual that at all. No. Okay. No. So, What Quint is noticing is this faint pinkish glow in the distance, and he tracks it through the streets, leaving everyone but Waita behind. In the center of a plaza, in front of a dry fountain, Quint finally found a pile of cloth and beads, surprisingly well-preserved. He examined the fabric, worried it would crumble under his touch. Instead, magic emanated from the gems and threads made from that ubiquitous purple-pink mineral a magic both familiar and distinct. So Quint spreads this poncho onto the ground and uses an incantation to summon the ghost of its owner so that they can speak with them. The turquoise glow coalesces into the form of an old man. Who are you? The man asks. Quint gives him his name, then asks who the old man is, and the old man can't answer. He looks like my abuelo, Waita says, and at that, the old man just lights up, saying that he was called Abuelo by someone in his past life. 
Which is the cutest thing, by the way, because if, if you're not familiar, Abuelo is grandfather in Spanish. And so and this guy is clear, like he's described as being an old man. So we don't know if he physically has relatives, like has, you know, either physical or adopted or whatever children. And they had physical or adopted or whatever children. And they call him Abuelo. Or if it's like the whole community calls him Abuelo because he's an old man or if he's like kind of the grandpa of the village. But either way. It immediately endears me to this character because I already am just like, well, somebody you you're a grandpa, like you you have grandpa vibes, like clearly if ever so if if that's the name that resonates with you, he may have forgotten what his actual name was. It sounds like he did, you know, he's been dead for a while apparently, um, long enough to have forgotten his name, but he didn't forget that sentiment of being abuelo, and I love that. It's okay. so sweet. So the old man looks around at the surroundings. He says he has to warn Oda clan of the mycoid infestation. And then he races off and Quint and Waita hurriedly follow him. Okay. You said mycoid infestation. Did I, did I hear that right? That's what Abuelo said. Like, I wonder if that's what all the fungus we're seeing. Yeah, it really sounds like it. That's my guess too. Um, I think we're about to get some answers here. So I I really don't like the sounds of infestation. I mean, Uh -uh. what happened to this place? Well, unfortunately, we're not going to find out this episode because at this point, we actually switch back to Malcolm's perspective as Malcolm, Breaches, and the Pirates are running from the zombie dinosaurs from before. So I'm glad we're back here because that was a big cliffhanger. So Malcolm's sword hacks through its mushroom-covered chest, steel sliding through its skin with unusual ease. And the creature just doesn't react, doesn't recoil, doesn't screech in pain. It just attempts to bite him again. So Malcolm spins around, running up the side of a rocky spire, leaping between several others before launching himself toward a clear space on the ground. And the rest of their company, so Breaches and the other pirates, are not faring any better in their fight against these zombie dinosaurs. But right here, Breaches has an idea. Oh, is his idea two words? Is it in all capitals? And is are you going to demonstrate it for us? I sure am. Yes. Big boom. <laughs> Okay. Every time you do it, I lose it. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Natalie. Please, please proceed. It's my inner goblin. It has to be my inner goblin that is just. I, like... you know, between the two of us, Natalie, I've always thought that I was the goblin. Um, but now I know the truth is that we're both goblins. But Malcolm is worried about the dangers of the underground. It, they would risk like collapse or spiky stalactites coming down on top of them if they set off an explosion. So instead, Malcolm begins to sing and his magical voice casts over everyone like a lullaby. Everyone stops what they're doing, even the zombie monsters. So still singing, Malcolm cuts his way through the zombie dinosaurs surrounding them, hacking them into pieces. Soon, the dinosaurs had been reduced to quivering piles of parts. He stopped singing, stalked to a corner of the cavern and threw up his last two meals. Sink don't blame me. Him. That was I don't blame him at all. No. Think <laughs> me. That was vile. He muttered. But at least they were alive. And the other pirates, they blink out of their dazes as if drunk. And Breaches fully recovers first, taking off his hat to scratch at his head and growls, no gems, no gold. <laughs> and Malcolm echoes and no people. 
Now, many of their fellow pirates had been bitten or scratched by the fungal dinosaurs, but Breaches was fortunate and seemed uninjured. So, yay, I'm very happy about that. Now, Malcolm investigates the fungal lit tunnel back to the cenote where the elevators were. And by the time he walks back to his injured companions, all of their injuries had, well, changed. There's no longer blood. Instead, their wounds are scabbed over already with this black inky substance that seems to be seeping across their skin like in these like lacy patterns. And all of the pirates exclaim that they feel fine, but something just does not feel right. And Malcolm's feathers are on edge once again. He could leave them here or send them back up, but he still had to solve the mystery of where the downtown residents had gone. He could use the extra hands if they came across more of these dinosaurs, and perhaps they really were fine, as they said. Or perhaps being so far underground was starting to get to him. When this was over, he'd take a nice long rest on a sunny beach somewhere. Vance would owe him that much, assuming he succeeded. Malcolm walked to the next elevator, his steps uncomfortably heavy for a creature of the air. The depths of the cenote beckoned, cold and comfortless. And this... This sentence just says a lot about Malcolm. He's so pragmatic over like he's thinking through the options over what he could do, but always takes the most pragmatic choice. And so anyway, that's going to come into play later. But I just wanted to say I really appreciate that about Malcolm. He's very level headed. He's going to think through logically over what makes the most sense. And then we switch back to the Dusk Legion vampires once more. And we are with Amalia's perspective as we finish up this episode. So the vampire expedition carries deeper and deeper into the caves, leaving behind the desert with the mantis spiders that nearly swallowed them. Amalia is marveling with both trepidation and awe at the ancient carvings surrounding them, which are covered in glyphs. And she couldn't determine if this is a monument, a proclamation, or a warning. An ominous sound waxed and waned around them, echoing off walls and then diminishing to a whisper. It reminded Amalia of holy oil being poured into a baptismal font, but on an unfathomably large scale. Her fresh blood filled in more of her map of these underground spaces. It was difficult to chart the topography properly, given how many different levels there were, none uniform. She squinted at some of the new lines and colors. What was that up ahead? Fire? Amalia remembered her visions and shivered. And just like in her vision... They enter into a giant cavern filled with lava, the source of the ominous noise. On rocky outcroppings, sometimes into the giant stalactites hanging from the ceiling, stood stone buildings, as if built to be accessed by only those who could fly. The buildings looked to be in better repair than the other ruins they had come across so far, but deserted. Or not quite... Someone emerged from a nearby building, chased by a half-dozen smaller figures. He raced across one of the bridges towards the vampires, wielding strange glowing swords that trailed motes of light. His clothes were unusual, a red and white tunic with a half cape, and what looked like branches covering the upper part of his chest. Hey, excuse me, he yelled over to the vampires. Help would be very appreciated. Hairless, pale goblins emerged, chasing him, throwing spears at the man, and Amalia immediately steps forward to help, but Vito just hissed and turned his back. Typical Vito, dismissing the whole thing as a waste of their time. But Amalia, she's not going to leave this person to their fate, and she retrieves her enchanted quill and unfurls her map, focusing on their location. She's careful to locate the precise location on the bridge the man is crossing, and with a delicate scratch, she changes the map. 
and changes the world, which again, oh, such a cool power. I love it. So cool. And so we're going to be able to see this kind of uh, manifest in real life here. So the bridge at, at Amalia's beckoning on the map, the bridge partially vanishes and the goblins fall into the gap and the man almost falls as well but he luckily lands with his upper body mostly on this new outcropping of the once bridge he manages to pull himself up to safety and jog over to them breathing heavily now that he was closer she noticed his skin was tanned like people from the sun empire unlike them however his ears ended in delicate points i'm in your debt he said bowing politely and you are Vito asked coldly. I'm Kellen, the man said. Not sure what I did to provoke those whatever they were, but I'm awfully glad you came along. His blades disappeared, leaving him holding hilts that looked like elaborately woven twigs. He hooked these onto his belt. It's Kellen. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Okay, so basically the last time we saw Kellen, he walked into a big circle that he didn't know where that like Basically, he saw this circle and on the other side of the circle was something that was very clearly not Eldraine and he walked through it. And we don't know if this is where he ended right after he walked through there or if this is like multiple of the omen paths that he's walked through. But I think it's safe to assume that he walked through that omen path and ended up here. Into the depths of Ixalan. (laughs) Into the depths of Ixalan and got chased by a goblin. (laughs) Of course he did. Of course he did. Like when I read this. Welcome to the multiverse, Kellen. Welcome to the multiverse, (laughs) Kellen. When I read this and and, and I found out that it was Kellen, I was so excited. And I was just like laughing because like, of course, Kellen would have that luck over. He would he would step right into a goblin house and get chased out of a goblin house in the depths of Ixalan where no one has treaded like in in thousands of years it's just it was it was so Kellen it makes so much sense for this character I loved it it was so cute and him just being like um help would be appreciated (laughs) um help (laughs) yeah (laughs) that was so cute I love the juxtaposition too of Kellen with these like very serious dusk legion vampires Vampires. on a holy quest to free their god like it's just like I couldn't imagine two opposite like characters types of characters meeting like kellen is nothing like these highly religious zealous vampires on this holy quest (laughs) no and as we can imagine Vito especially is unhappy to see kellen because they're on a holy quest and they can't afford distractions he says and even though both amalia and bartolome exclaim that kellen's gonna die if he leaves there Vito is just like really intent on leaving him behind but amalia clears her throat she says i'll take responsibility for him and then we've lost too many people. Perhaps he can help. And with this, Vito, in typical, very serious Vito fashion, says that Amalia is to report anything suspicious to him immediately. And after he walks away, Bartolome warns Amalia not to openly defy Vito again. Kellen tells Amalia here, thanks, I think. And Amalia notices that Kellen is wounded, but she remarks that his blood smells different, strange and potent, like spice wine. Ooh, could that be because he's half fae? That's what I was thinking, too. Amalia is from Ixalan, and there are no fae on Ixalan, so she would never have smelled fae blood. So I really think that's what she's smelling here, because it's not the human side of him. She knows what that smells like. Right. Right. So I like that. I like that little detail that his blood yeah. smells different. He's he's like what a he, cool flavor. Piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So 
From here, Kellen is able to fix his own wounds, but he wonders who Amalia and the rest of these other vampires are. And Amalia says that she'll try to explain everything while they move onwards. I mean, Vito's expedition won't wait up for them after all. But that promise tasted like stale blood in her mouth because she wasn't sure what she could tell the stranger. They entered another tunnel, the lava's light and roar fading behind them, the darkness, its own terrible promise. And that's how we end this episode. It ends like that. Oh, I feel like this, um, the pacing in this season is so good. It's fast. It's very fast paced. It's so fast. It's very like, and this happens and this happens. And then we're switching to this perspective, but I'm not getting confused. Like, I really appreciate what Valerie Valdez did in this story Mm -hmm. um, where we have these three groups that are all kind of doing their own thing. But I just... I just want to applaud her for a moment and say, like, I'm not confused. I'm not getting twisted up about, wait, who am I with or what am I doing or where are they going? It's so well written. And I just if you have a chance to sit down and read this episode, this story, this season, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, a workflow that could that could be fun is is actually reading the stories and then listening to our recaps um, and seeing, you know, what you didn't pick up on in the story um, and always interact with us and tell us what we missed, too, because we don't you know, we read these multiple times, but there's so much in these stories. But anyway, I just want to say I'm really happy to see Kellen again. Me like, too. that's so exciting. Me too. Um, but he's caught up in with the Dusk Legion vampires. So, like, I, you know, it would have been maybe better if he had popped out with the Sun Empire. Yeah, like, <laughs> and not the Legion of Dusk. would have totally <laughs> taken Kellen in and yeah. no problem. I don't necessarily no. trust, you know, Dusk Legion vampires to have Kellen's best interest in mind. Like, I just, no. I, I don't think that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> no. And then, and then there's a the whole thing about a, Mycoid infestation. Yeah, so that's what is not good that? either. What is that? Oh. I feel like we're only just beginning to see. Like, I, we had begun to we we got this inkling feeling last episode, right? That these caverns, these underground caverns of Ixalan, are massive. They're much more than what we like. What the what the eye kind of beholds. That it just keeps going. Um, And I had mentioned earlier in this episode, too, that Malcolm had taken like 11 elevators down. So I'm trying to wrap my brain around how big this place is. And it feels like we have only just scratched the surface of what could potentially be living down here. Right. Like it it feels like it's limitless. And what else are they going to come across? Like that's that's my big question right now. It's like clearly there's this mycoid infestation that has caused a lot of like it was definitely a catastrophic event a long 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 time ago but what else is living down here there has to be more and so i'm so excited one of the things that i thought was really interesting is that one line about how there were like fungus strings kind of attached to those zombie dinosaurs that had mushroom gills and i'm like and it said that they were strings like puppets so my question is who is puppeting them? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is like, what is this mushroom fungus thing? Like, what is it truly? I have so many questions. <laughs> I do too. But we still have a lot to explore in these underground caverns of Ixalan, just like our characters do. If you liked today's episode, do us a huge favor and leave us a review. Those mean the world to us. All of these stories and many more are available for you to read right now at mtgstory.com. And if you like audiobook versions, we have those too. 
You can listen to each episode of The Lost Caverns of Ixalan be read aloud to you by one of our very own internal wizards at the top of each story webpage. We can't wait to dive into our next episode right around the corner. So stay tuned for next week. But until then, have have a magical magical day. day.